five, if you can believe it already, week five of our series about Samuel, the prophet of Israel. Today we're going to be talking about the God of the impossible. God of the impossible. And like we've been talking about so far this morning, sometimes in life we face difficult situations and things that if we look at ourselves and then that problem we're facing, it looks impossible, right? And it looks like there's no solution for us. And maybe it's a job we can't seem to find or a situation in our family that's going on forever and can't seem to come to an end, or a problem you face in life that you can't get victory over, uh, a hopeless situation. And one of the things that a hopeless situation can do is make you feel powerless, like there's nothing you can do about it. You might even have a situation like that right now where you're desperately praying for a breakthrough. And let's see what God has to say to us today about that. So if in your Bibles, if you would turn, please, to 1 Samuel 5. Grab a Bible in the middle there. We're going to go through 5 and 6 today, and the first verse of chapter 7. So we're going to, they're short chapters, by the way. <laughs> so uh, let's start chapter 5 at verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was on against that city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of God of Israel around to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Okay, so when we left the account last week, remember Pastor Steve was telling us that the Israelites had taken the ark of God into the battle with the Philistines, thinking that the ark was going to bring them victory, kind of treating it like a good luck charm or, or something like that. But what happened was they were thoroughly trounced by the enemy. 30,000 people died. And the ark of the God was captured. Eli's sons, the high priest's son, were also killed in the battle. And Eli died after hearing the news. 
And so Samuel, at this point, then becomes the priest at Shiloh, the priest for Israel. And when you think about it, what a disaster he inherited. So what would you be thinking if you're, say you're an Israelite, what would you be thinking after this happened? You'd wonder, is God against us? What's going on? You'd think it's hopeless. What? Why? Yeah. I mean, you would be thinking, oh my goodness, this is not a good situation. We've been defeated, and even worse, we've lost the symbol of our covenant relationship with God. The ark of the, our relationship with Adonai, the place where God said his glory would dwell in the temple, and that's gone. 1 Samuel 4, 21 to 22, uh, Pastor Steve shared this last week. It's about one of the wives of uh, Hophni or Phinehas, and she says, the glory uh, in 1 Samuel 4, 21 and 22, the glory has departed from Israel. She understood that when the ark was captured and when they lost this battle and how they had treated that, that the glory of God was gone. At the very end there, verse 22, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. And this was because the Israelites were not treating the ark of God like it should have been treated as God, the very thing of God's presence, but they were treating it like an idol that would bring them victory in battle. Well, the Philistines, who they were fighting, knew all about idols. And it tells us here today in the scripture that they had a temple to their main god, Dagon. And it was a place where they would also put other idols, but the main part of the temple was dedicated to this, to this idol. The Philistines actually were uh, what you would call a polytheist, polytheistic culture. There we go. A polytheistic culture means they had multiple gods. They, they obviously are all false gods. And uh, they had a bunch of idols to these bunch of gods. And it was typical when they would have a victory in battle that they would care over a nation, they would carry off that nation's idols because they saw that they, they thought there was power in these things. And so they would take them away and carry them back and put them in their temple uh, so they brought home the Ark of the Covenant and brought it home to Ashdod and put it in Dagon's temple there. But the interesting thing was, even though the glory of God had left Israel, the power and the glory of God is still working. And in the morning, the next day, the Philistines got up and they go to their temple, you know, as usual, and Dagon, the idol, is on its face before the Ark of the covenant of God. So what does that idol falling on its face before the ark show us? What do you think? The power of God's bigger than the idol. Yeah. It shows us that the Lord God is the one true God. And that power is bigger than anything that the en enemy can have. And the ark, because it symbolized the presence of God, took power over all of that evil in that temple. The Philistines didn't understand that, though. They thought, well, we'll just put him back up where he goes. So they pick up their idol up and place him back. But the next morning, it's even worse. The idol's lying on its face before the ark, but the heads and hands are broken off and put back on the threshold. And uh, this is a common practice at that time. 
if you fought a battle, in fact, you see other instances in the Old Testament when they would capture the kings, what would they do? They would cut the heads off. And so this is God saying, I've decapitated your false god. And, they, and the head and the hands are back on the threshold because God is saying, listen, I'm the only true God. I'm holy and I'm mighty. And God said he would not tolerate any gods before him. Remember that in the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is, you will have no other gods before me. So when the Ark of the Covenant of God is in the Temple of Dagon, no other gods can be before it. So he takes that and puts it down before it, bowing in reverence to the one true God. But this, we find out, is not just the only problem these people have. At the same time, it tells us God brought devastation on those people at Ashdod. Now, Ashdod is a port city, um, and there would have been a lot of rodents in that place. And uh, rodents carry disease, and it would be a way of transmitting the outbreak of all these tumors. God uh, sends all those uh, rodents, obviously, out with a disease, and it could have been dysentery, it could have been the plague, both of which will cause tumors and swelling of the lymph nodes. And so these people not only have these tumors, it tells us, but they're dying as well. And so all caused by these pathogen-carrying rodents. But the people, they know it's not just the rodents that are the problem. They see, they connected to the fact that it's the ark of God. And they saw it as a judgment of God on them. So they call together all the rulers in Ashdod and ask, what should we do? And what's the solution? Send the ark to Gath. So <laughs> the same thing happens there, you know? I mean, they just sent the problem on, right? And the people are in a great panic to see it coming because the reputation obviously had preceded it. The way the Philistine uh, nation was is there's a bunch of little towns of, with kings of each town all joined together in this Philistine uh, nation. And so word would travel fast, and the people had heard about what happened in Ashdod, and all of a sudden, here it comes to them, and they don't want it. And they say, uh, you know, the judgment of God fell on them too, tumors and death, young and old, and the way that they got rid of the problem was, send it on to Ekron. So as the ark enters Ekron. The people who have heard about Ashdod and Gath cry out, oh no, they're trying to kill us. They see, why are you sending this problem to us? And they call the rulers and say, send this ark back to Israel or we're all going to die. And then verse 11 tells us, for death had filled the city with panic. Everybody's in a panic because there's tumors and death, and it's not just hitting one group or the other. It's everybody. And according to verse 12, it says, you either had a tumor or you died, or both. There was a sense of the heavy hand of God on the people. So then what happens next? Well, let's read in chapter 6, starting at verse 1 through the end of the, through the, end of the chapter. When the ark of the Lord, or through verse 12, when the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory seven months, seven months, the Philistine called the priests and diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, if you return the ark of God to Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. 
by all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, Five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country, and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it did, does not, we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Okay, so finally after seven months, I don't know how they stood this for seven months. Can you imagine? Seven months of this ark going around from town to town and people getting sick and dying. Um, all this time to deal with the judgment of God. But finally, after seven months, the Philistine priests and diviners, which that meant they were into witchcraft, these false uh, priests came together and they are called on for a solution. These people aren't followers of God. And they worship all these idols and evil spirits. But even so, they recognize that the ark of God needs to go back to Israel. And not only just send it back, but they say send a guilt offering. Five gold tumors and five gold rats. Kind of an interesting deal, huh? Um, uh, shows us that the disease for sure was carried by these rodents. And the offering was to pay honor to Israel's God, to ask for healing and to see why the judgment of God was on them. I mean, it's amazing to me that these people who worship all these false gods understood the power of the Almighty God. So in their discussion of how to send the ark back, uh, they referenced the Egyptians and talk about how they had a hard heart. And they said, don't be like those guys. Don't keep waiting it out. Send it back. Let's not be like that. Limit this problem. Let's not drag it on. It's already done enough bad stuff. And so they do the best they can. They, they don't have, like the Israelites knew the proper procedure to how, how to treat the ark, how to handle the ark, what to do around the ark. But these people did not. But still they realized that they wanted to play, pay honor to this God of Israel. So they build a new cart and put it on there with that box of gold tumors and gold rats. 
And then they use two mama cows that have never ever been hitched up to a cart before. And they put their calves in a pen and send this cart on its way. So how was this a test of the source of the outbreak? What do you think? When it goes to the country, it shows that that's what it was. Yeah. That's right. Mother cows don't leave their calves. Yeah. They would not normally leave their calves. And here's the other thing. If you, have, if you hitch up an animal, two animals that have never pulled a cart before, they're going to be tossing and trying to get out of there. They don't know what's going on. And so it would have been a mess. But what it tells us in this passage is that they pull and they low all the way there. They're making noise all the way there, but they're not turning to the right or to the left. They're going straight there back to Israel. So the Philistines watch, and they want to be sure where the cows are going. And the cows go straight to Beth Shemesh. And this is what the Philistine priest said would prove that the disaster was from the God of Israel, God's hand on them. Okay, so picking up at verse 13 then. That's right. It was just the cows. Nobody leading them. It was God leading them, obviously. No people. Just the cows went straight there, which is amazing that the cows would know right where to go, right? Yeah. So verse 13 then, as we read on, now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the Ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the Ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom will the Ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of kiriath Jerim, saying, The Philistines have come, have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of kiriath Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer his son to guard the ark of the Lord. Okay. <clears throat> well, Beth Shemesh 
was a border town in Israel, right on the border between Israel, Israel and the Philistines. It was a town that was one of the towns that was actually given to the Levites. Remember when Joshua, when they divided up the land, they took several towns and said, the Levites don't get a whole territory, but they get all these towns within all the territories. And uh, Joshua 21.8 says, So the Israelites allotted to the Levites these towns and their pasture lands, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. And when we jump down to verse 13 through 16, So to the descendants of Aaron the priest they gave Hebron, a city of refuge for one accused of murder, Libna, Datir, Eshtemoah, Holon, Debir, Ain, Juta, and Beth Shemesh. There it is, one of the towns for the Levites, together with their pasture lands nine towns from these two tribes. So there's other towns besides these, but you see here that Beth Shemesh is one of the towns given to them. And imagine for a moment that more than seven months have gone by. There's no way that you would go and try and get the ark back if you're an Israelite, right? Because of that resounding defeat that you had suffered against the hands. I mean, it was a devastating loss. 30,000 people perishing in the battle, and some being priests, and the recovery of the ark was not going to happen. It would have seemed impossible. It would have seemed impossible that God could come back and cause things to work together for good. So then this day, after seven plus months, the people are out harvesting wheat in the valley. So if you think about, you know, you're working there in the harvest, and you pause for a second, and you look up, and here comes the ark of the Lord on this cart. You would be so happy to see it. You would wonder, how did this happen, right? You'd be like, oh my goodness, look, there's the ark of the Lord. And people rejoice to see it, it tells us. And then the Philistines are obviously hiding out somewhere, watching to make sure what happens. And they saw the Israelites take the, the um, wood of the cart and slaughter the cows and offer a burnt offering to the Lord and a sacrifice to the Lord. And then it tells us that the Levites, which it had to be the Levites, because that's what God said. It's the Levites that lift the ark off and set it down and uh, put it on this large rock in this field in Beth Shemesh. And the fact that this is a Levite town is so significant because only the Levites could have carried it. And God moved this, these cows with this cart to that town. God had accomplished what the people could not. The return of the ark of the Lord to Israel. He's the God of the impossible. And after the five lords of the Philistines saw this, they're watching from afar. They leave and return. They're, they got their answer. Yeah, that was the Lord. That was the Lord that was having his heavy hand upon us. Five gold tumors and gold rats for these five towns of these five guys, Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. So apparently it seems that during these seven months, it had obviously been to all those five towns because they all came together and said, we don't need this here, let's send this back. In Beth Shemesh, as all of this rejoicing is going on, um, it tells us, though, that apparently 70 people think it's a good idea to go look inside the ark. So they obviously remove the cover and look inside. And God had to judge that because that was something they were not supposed to do. 
The ark was holy. It was the place where God would meet with the priests. Remember, in the tabernacle, as they would come in the tabernacle, the priests could go into the holy place, but then there is the most holy place that only once a year the high priest would go in, and there was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that was where they would splatter the blood of the sacrifice on the seat, on the cover of the Ark. It, it contained uh, the Ten Commandments, but it represented the presence of God. And so you were not to touch it. You were not. They, they had poles through rings if they would want to take it out they would have to lift it by the poles. They were not to directly touch the ark. And so these 70 people thought, hey, let's look in there. Well, God had no choice but to kill them. And so they're struck down by God, making a statement to all the other people about the holiness of God. And that's what they say. They talk about the holiness of God. And how can we, who's able to stand before Adonai, before the holy God? It's not to be a thing to be treated lightly. The presence of God is contained within this Ark of the Covenant. From time to time, there's things that happen in our life. They send a message, uh, you know, to Kiriam Jiriath to come and get the Ark and place it in a consecrated place. And so they saw that that was something that they needed to be doing to come back to God as part of that. Remember, they were sacrificing sacrifices before God, it tells us, because they realized they needed to turn back to God. And there's times in our life when we have situations like that too where, where maybe there's something that's happened and it's God using it to draw us back to him. There might also be times that seem impossible, right? Things that we wonder, how is this ever going to get taken care of? What am I going to do in this situation? And we can't think of anything in ourselves to solve it. And it's times like these we need to turn to the God of the impossible. So the question for all of us is we can ask ourselves, what can I do in an impossible situation? Well, the first thing we need to do is to see that God is bigger than our problem. We need to see that through God we can be victors. We don't have to live like victims, like, oh my gosh, this horrible thing has happened and there's nothing I can do. I'm a victim. No, we want to live as victorious because when we trust God, when we serve the almighty God of heaven and earth, we don't have to live like a victim. We can live like a victor. We can have victory over things through the power of God when we're surrendered to Jesus Christ. Because God's definitely bigger than any problem any of us have. Any disease, any attack of the devil, anything we will ever face, God is bigger than any problem. When in the Old Testament, when King Jehoshaphat was being attacked by five nations, he went to God. Second Chronicles 20.15 says, God said to him, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. <clears throat> This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Battle belongs to the Lord. The problems we face might seem huge, and we don't have an earthly solution to fix them. 
But if we trust God and take our problems to him, he is the almighty God, the God who created the universe. And the Bible tells us there's nothing too hard for God. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. That's encouraging, isn't it? That gives us hope. God doesn't just want us to go, though, with just the biggest problems, because how do you decide what that is, right? If it seems like a problem to you, he wants to hear about it. He wants to be in relationship with us, and he cares about everything in our lives. So we need to see that God's bigger than any problem we will ever face. And then the second thing we need to do if we're in an impossible situation is stand firm in our faith. Stand firm in my faith. One of the weapons of the devil is to try and get us away from our faith in God, you know, to make us question God, to lose faith. The devil wants to make us weak. And the way he does that, he tries to pull us away from God. We need to stand firm in our faith. Exodus 13, 14, Moses is talking to the people. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see here today, you will never see again. It's like when God takes care of a problem, it's done. And so we need to stand firm in our faith and see the deliverance of the Lord. Even when we don't know the answer, we know that we trust a powerful God who loves us and who wants our best for us. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, it says, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. So we need to stand firm in our faith and hang in there. Keep trusting God no matter what's going on. And the third thing is wait and watch what God does. Wait and watch what God does. See, even though we know that God will fight our battles for us, we can sometimes get a little anxious and fretful if it hasn't happened yet. And instead, we need to focus on God and what he is doing and wait on him. Once we've prayed and we've turned it over to God, we need to leave it in his hands. But sometimes that means to just wait. And we want to take it back and say, maybe I need to do something about this. But God is saying, no, wait on me. Watch what I'm going to do. It doesn't mean that God isn't answering if it doesn't happen right away. He's working all these things out on our behalf. And at the right time, we'll see his, his moving on our behalf. God told the people of Israel that he was going to fight for them. When King Jehoshaphat, I was reading that verse before, and, and it says in Second Chronicles 20, 17, you will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Sometimes we have to face those problems, but on the problems you and I can't do anything about, the things that seem impossible, we can trust God because he will fight that battle for us when we're trusting in him. The Apostle Paul knew that God would work things out when he was in prison. I mean, he had no idea how he was going to be saved. He just believed in God and in his provision. He had confidence in God. Philippians 1.19, Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision 
of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. There's a bigger picture that we don't always see of God's provision and his protection. He will do the impossible. Isaiah 55, 9 says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So that tells us that there's sometimes things we don't understand. We don't see how he's going to do it. But man, if we're trusting God, his higher ways, his power, his glory, his majesty, the fact that he is the creator of heaven and earth, he will fight that battle for us and through us. We just have to trust on him and put our confidence in the Lord God. For all those things you're trusting God for, the things that you can't control, you can see that God's bigger than the problem. Stand firm in your faith and wait on God and watch what he does. Please stand. As we close, I just ask you to bow your heads. And I have a question. Uh, just how many of you would say that you have a problem right now you're dealing with that only God can solve? Just raise your hand. Thank you. If you've never trusted God in your life, if you want to commit your life and surrender your heart to him, to Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and rose again, if you've never made that commitment, just raise and you want to make it today, just raise your hand. Thank you. If you want to make a commitment also to trust God, to have confidence in him, to give him your problem and stand firm in your faith, and wait on him. If you want to make that commitment today, just raise your hand. Thank you. Lord God, we thank you that we can trust you, that you've said in your word that we can be strong and courageous in you, that you give us your strength, that you give us the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to get through all these things in life, and the things that are impossible, Lord God, that you will fight those battles for us when we're trusting you. Lord, we take all these things that we have that are so difficult and things that we don't know what to do problems that are beyond our understanding and lord we lay them down at your feet we ask you father we place it in your hands lord god and ask you to solve that ask you to take that problem and lord accomplish your will through us fight that battle for us lord god we know that uh, you are always victorious and so lord we know as we trust you that we don't have to live in a way that's uh, as a victim of this problem, but we can live in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can leave, live in the victory that God will bring about. Lord God, help us not to get anxious or fretful when we're seeing these things, but help us to trust you, Lord God. Help us to know that you will do the things that you have said in your word that you will do. Help us, Lord, to see the victory of the Lord in our lives. Father, we've made a commitment today to follow you and to do your will. And so, Lord God, we just pray that all of the things, all of the resources of God will be available to us to be able to get through all of these things we face each day. Lord God, I pray that we would, like the people when they saw the ark, we would rejoice in what you do in our lives. Lord, it tells us in your word that when we commit things to you, Lord, that we can thank you. And so, Lord, we thank you right now 
for the answer to those uh, problems, the answer to the things that we're going to trust you for, Lord God. We thank you for your answer. We thank you for the victory. Lord, we want to see breakthrough in our lives, that you would work your way and your will in our lives each day. Help us, Lord, to be examples of what that means to follow Jesus Christ everywhere we go. We thank you, Lord God. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.